I thank my host for that great introduction and bringing me up here. Uh, my name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. And uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, thank Ryan. He's somewhere around here for uh, having Chris and I here and um, my uh, driver today, wherever he went. Uh, that was an adventure. Um, and uh, always good to see Chris. Um, and I'm glad to be here this weekend uh, to uh, share our experience, strength, and hope and have a conversation with you guys about what it, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now as a result of the 12 steps. This keeps going in and out. You hear it? Okay. Um, is that a hint? I'm done already. You guys are fed up with me already, is that? Yeah? Okay. Um, June 23rd, 1988 is when a loving God separated me from alcohol. I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety. Um, <clears throat> it seems to be the longer I'm sober, the older I'm getting. Uh, that uh, personal relationships uh, become really important to me. We were talking a few minutes ago. Um, buddy up, up north who moved to Florida just passed away. Um, and another friend just passed away yesterday, and uh, since COVID, uh, lost a bunch of folks. Not from COVID, but just um, God called them home. And you realize how precious those relationships were sometimes when they're gone. And uh, for me, my job is to be cleaning up scrapes and not have tension with someone when I see them walk in a room and say, oh, there they are with their book, or there they are with, without, a, without a book, um, and, and, and clean that stuff up. And even to the point where if I can tell someone, uh, hey, I love you, and I don't get a response back, that's really okay. Living in a world with a spirit, that's okay. Living here, that's not okay because I need something back. I gave you, now you give me. It just doesn't work like that with God. Because God tells me he loves me every day, and sometimes I don't respond back. I've missed days with prayer and meditation, but he keeps loving me. So it's really important that I do that. The other thing I've learned is... Um, <clears throat> It seems to be the longer I'm, I'm sober and the older I'm getting that God has kept me for the most part right size and kept me out of my own way. Uh, you know, not getting attached to things that I thought I needed to be okay. And the way God gives is sometimes removing and God has continually pruned the tree with me, continually removed things from me and it would hurt when he would do it. And I think he wasn't paying attention to my life, but we live life forward and understand it backwards and we look back on it now and we see God's mercy in that and all things. And mainly, mainly, namely the things he keeps taking away is the money, property and prestige, the things I think I need to be okay. You got to forgive my voice. Uh, I've been up since about 4 a.m., so um, <clears throat> whatever left is left, and the voice should be going in about 15 minutes. So I'll sound like the Godfather from you know in, in a few minutes. You want sobriety? Um, and sometimes when God's removing things, it's incredibly uncomfortable because I think He's not loving me or doesn't care for me. I think He's not paying attention. But really, uh, what it is, is my point of view on certain things. My point of view, I might be a little sound asleep. My point of view might be self-centered. I'm looking out from my mess rather than looking in from my mess. And I'm looking as external things to remedy what ails me inside. Things I think I need to be a better man with, a better AA, a better husband, a better brother. And they're all out there. 
If I get enough money, I'll be deemed a real man. I'll be a good supporter of my family and everyone will respect me. If I get that promotion, if I get that new car, my neighbors will think I'm important. If I get the biggest house in South Florida, people will really say, this guy must have struck it rich. He must be a good guy. But God doesn't operate out there unless he gives it to me and I need to be unbelievably charitable with that because it's all his anyway. Where God operates, and this isn't just my experiences in here. Where he awakens the soul. It's interesting, Chris touched on this. The main problem sin is the mind, not the body. <clears throat> but the solution isn't in the mind, it's in the soul. The part of me that creates the problem is not where I go to solve the problem. And yet I still live up in the mind that tells me out there something in the external world is going to fix what's going on right now in here. And when I finally wake up and get past that, thank you, God, for that, I realize that the soul is always right. My job is to get soul food in here and operate out of the soul, not operate out of woundedness, not operate out of my story. You know, we have a story, what it was like and what happened, what it's like now. Are we still living our story or are we living the life God gave us? I could be, you know, stuck to my story and here's my story. And we hear it all the time, well, I'm sick because I'm an alcoholic. That's, that's old. That's old. I mean, I'm going to suffer from alcoholism because I'm never cured. But just to cop to that with the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and so many awakened members here, and a loving God looking over all of it, I should be screwing up a lot less. <clears throat> I shouldn't be going on emotional benders anymore. I should not be living on page 52, but we dip in there once in a while. So the longer I'm sober and the older I'm getting, God keeps waking me up. And my point of view gets a little bit sharper sometimes, as long as I'm looking with God's eyes. My life should be a walking prayer, because I will tell you, you'll look at me, I, I'm on my knees, it looks like I'm praying, I sound up like I'm praying, and I think I'm Moses right around there, until I get up off my knees and hit 95 South, and then I turn into Rambo. My life, the talk, the talk is, you know, anyone can give a good talk, listen to a couple of CDs, get up here and regurgitate, and everyone go, great talk, that was wonderful. Where'd you get that from? <clears throat> For me to talk, I mean, the sermon is the walk. That's truly where I'm at. And so what my job is to share with you my experiences, not memorizing stuff. Because I've seen a lot of folks, and, and, and I love our book. I even like our 12 and 12, the longer I'm sober, the older I'm getting. And I, I, I love the mechanics. But I've watched a lot of guys, and I started to knock on that door where I was starting to worship mechanics rather than the power that's taken me through the mechanics. See, the big book is a beautiful. It's my book. It's our book. And this is what my recovery, thank you God, is based out of. But the book doesn't keep me sober. And I can have a great home group. The home group doesn't keep me sober because we know some groups close. During COVID, we had no real home group anymore. We weren't meeting. We were online, but it's a little different. And the sponsor doesn't keep me sober. All those things are vehicles to keep me, to get me to the power which is keeping me sober along. That is the power I should be serving. That is the power I should be worshiping. When I first got new, or first got sober, when you're new, you know, we get into that AA boot camp where sobriety is the number one priority. The old timers with Barker, sobriety is the number one priority. And so you 
say that means sobriety is my number one priority. And that's a great thing. It's true. But the longer I'm sober and the older I'm getting, what has happened to me is that conscious contact with God is my number one priority. Because if sobriety is my number one priority and I don't have conscious contact with God, I have unconscious contact with God, I'm watching sobriety just slip away. And as it slips away, what happens is a lot of old behavior starts coming back. And I tell you it's old behavior, but if I'm still doing it, it's very current behavior. It's not, it's not really old behavior. Because what my alcoholism will do is go underground and resurface in other areas. It calls sex sprees and food sprees and money sprees and gambling sprees and shopping sprees and fear sprees and anger sprees and self-righteous sprees. It just goes on and on and on. But I'm not okay. And yet you ask me to give a talk and I'll recite the book and correct your columns in column four. I'll correct your whole fourth step. And I will bristle with antagonism from the back of the room if someone did a three-column inventory. Boom! Failing to realize I might have a different experience with them and I'll disagree with them, but if they're walking light, who am I to challenge that? See, one of the biggest lines, uh, not my favorite line, but one of the, for me, the biggest, most important lines in our book says the following, we had to quit playing God, it didn't work. And what I have to take a look at, the longer I'm sober, the older I'm getting, is how often I'm playing God and I'm not even aware I'm doing it. It's that inner dialogue we have. Oh, I know what they're going to share. I know what they need to do. Those two shouldn't be going out. Those two should be going out. I should be going out with her. The group's doing it wrong. They should do it this way. And you sit there, and like Chris says, oh, that's I, wonderful, great share. I hate them. And it's like, and I wake up in the morning at 5 o'clock, and at 5.02, I'm in a heated argument with someone who died 30 years ago because they didn't do it right. Or I look at the work day, uh, you know, I, I look, consider my plans for the day, but I don't go to God first, and I know what's going to happen, and I know what they're going to say, and by 5.15, I'm ready to lock and load. I'm in Rambo mode because I know what they're going to say and do. And I know what I need to do today. I still write out an agenda every day. I remember I started doing that early in recovery. Someone says, you got so much traffic in head, just write down things you're going to do for the day. Little chores. I still do it. The difference is I might put five or six or ten things on there knowing I may not get to any of them. I might knock out a couple because I have no idea, and this I'm very clear about, I have no idea what God's going to do. Last week, I had to go see a friend uh, on his deathbed. I had a whole lot of things I was planning to do that day. And God says, no, we're going to go see Paulie Tiles. Anyone knows Paulie DeLeo? He's home with God now. So my whole day got changed, but that's how I, I try not to play God. So June 23rd, 1988 is when God separated me from alcohol. I need to tell you who my sponsor, my home group is. My home group is called Alcoholics and God in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm very grateful to be a member of that group. On Thursday, we have rotating 12-week step series, and on Monday, we have a big book study there. And uh, my sponsor is currently Bob Azanz out of St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm very grateful for this man being in my life. I will tell you, uh, other than my first six months in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was in that halfway three-quarter sober house phase that we some of us go through um, and I was talking to a lot of men uh, but didn't have a sponsor 
But since uh, six months sober, um, I started to uh, attach myself to someone out there in Minnesota. When I came home six months later, I got a sponsor. And I've never been without a sponsor on this whole journey. So if someone is new here or counting, you know, like months, that kind of new, uh, or you're floating around here and uh, you've gotten cured and you don't need a sponsor, that's something we, we really need to take a look at. Because if I'm bouncing stuff off for myself, that's not good. And I, I've done it. And if I'm bouncing stuff off for John or Joe or Frank or Harry, I'm going to keep bouncing stuff off until I get the answer I want. Like, you can cheat on your wife. It's a good idea. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. That kind of stuff. It's really playing Russian roulette. When uh, God got me sober, uh, when God surrendered me, really, on June 23rd, 1988, uh, interesting things happened to me. I mean, I was convinced I was alcoholic for years before God got me sober. I had been through sev seven treatment centers in my life, and in 1988, I was living on the streets of New York in an area called Alphabet City. I was living in an abandoned building, and I was panhandling on the streets, and bathing never happened, and rarely did I eat. Um, it was about getting money, hustling money, do whatever I had to do for money, going to the liquor store and back to, back to the hallway. And I think about, you know, living in an abandoned building in, a, in the back, hidden behind this old metal radiator. Uh, it seems some days like it's 100 years ago, and sometimes it feels like it was last week. But either, either reflection, I can't believe I was living like that and survived it. How did I get that far? And alcoholism wasn't done with me, but God intervened. And what happened to me on that particular day, you know, the more, uh, the longer I'm sober, the older I'm getting, you, you kind of see things clearer. And the greatness of God in a very, very difficult time. But I remember that day getting up off the floor because I would come to and shake violently. It wasn't like waking up and I need a drink or I'm going to go get drunk. Or I haven't had a drink in a little while. I'm going to go to the, you know, to the bar. It was like I'd come to and I was sick. And um, for little dofiends out there, I have some experience with non-conference approved dry goods. We can talk about that after the meeting. But my last, uh, I'd say, two years out there it was purely booze and some pills. And that's what I was doing. So I'd come to on the back, uh, in the back of this hallway on the floor with filthy, uh, reeking clothes. I, I, I was filthy. And uh, my number one priority is I got to get a drink in me right now because my hands are shaking, my belly's bad, I'm sweating and cold. I weighed 130 pounds at the time, uh, running around with hepatitis C. I was urinating blood. And uh, I'm in serious trouble here. And the only remedy I can think of was alcohol. I got to get some drink in me first just to settle this down. Then I'll figure out what I'm going to do with my life. But once I got the drink, I needed a second drink. See, that screamed louder than the first one. And by the third one, it craved the fourth one. And, you know, back to the same old thing again. And uh, what happened to me on this particular day, I, I got up off the floor, and it was as if someone went behind me and kicked the back of my knees in. And I was on the floor. And then everything started to change. I had no idea what was going on with me. But I began to uh, have this purging of tears, this weeping. And I couldn't stop it. It was as if I, I, I saw my life pass before my eyes. It didn't, but that the feeling to illustrate. And I thought of being a, a little kid and just running around having fun and my first drunk on a street corner 14 years old. And then how it just, it just, hell's gates opened up. And how did I land here? 
How did I get here in an abandoned building? And as we know, whether it's Park Avenue or Park Bench, pain is pain. It's usually the emotional thing that gets our attention. It's something deep down in here that says, hey, this is not good anymore. When our children say, daddy or mommy, you're drunk again, it could be that matter of fact, and somehow it gets us. Or the boss says, I have to let you go. You're terminated. Been fired a million times, but this time something changed. For me, it was in the back of an abandoned building where something shifted. How did I get here? This was not the plan. Who would sign up for degradation and humiliation day in and day out? Whether it's Park Avenue, Park Bench, I'm a homemaker, I'm a lawyer, whatever I'm doing, no one signs up for that, for that kind of stuff. No one signs up to be the, the way we infect and affect our families where, and anyone, Al-Anon's here know exactly what I'm talking about, where the family now loses their voice and their identity because it's focused in on keeping us together. I know because I live with an alcoholic mom, she took her life. This is what I do. And in, 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 in the middle of these tears, I remember crying out to this power called God. I'm a cradle Catholic. My mom taught me how to pray and did all the religious things we're supposed to do. And I, had, I never really had a problem with the carpenter. I, I just think he wasn't interested in me. But this God, this big God, if he does exist, he's awfully cruel. And I despised him. Never was an atheist. And I look at worldly clamors and I say, he's doing a pretty poor job. And he took me to an abandoned building. This is what I'm walking around with, this type of stuff. See, one of the delusions, and I try to outrun that. And one of the delusions I walk around with is that thinking life, circumstances are controllable, and moreover, I can control them. And drinking feels like I'm in control of all of this, yet it's just unraveling. And that control is rarely, rarely, willfully relinquished, usually involuntarily shattered when we hit the wall. And I begged this, God, please take me from this. I don't want to die, which is interesting. I didn't think anything about that back then. That was my plea. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. I wasn't thinking, period. I wasn't thinking about AA, need to go to AA, get a sponsor, go through the 12 steps, and then come to North Carolina and talk about it. In about 34 years. I wasn't thinking I need to go to detox, then to treatment, then to AA. I need a girlfriend. I need a wife. I need a job. I need some money. I need some I need a shower. Nothing. There was nothing going on other than a sincere plea for God where I felt, I don't know if this would have happened, that if I get a drink in me, I'm going to die. And if I don't get a drink in me, I'm going to die. And that was very real. I was right at the jumping off place. What do I do? As if I needed help taking another breath. There was nothing left. I was out of options with me, out of options. And I've wondered about that a lot. And I spoke to some elders in AA, some old-timers in AA, including my priest. It's called divine intervention. That's how we get surrendered. Because as long as, and I speak for myself, in that place, if I was thinking I need to go to detox, then to treatment, then to AA, get a sponsor, go through the 12 steps, study the traditions, know the concepts, get a service commitment, who's running my life again? It snuck in in the worst part of adversity. It snuck right in, self-reliance. I know what I need to do. And God removed all me screwing it up. 
It was, please take me from this. I don't want to die. I didn't know why I was going to go or what I was going to do. And God lift me out of that scrap heap and place me in treatment number seven. And I still don't know what I'm going to do. They sent me out to Minnesota from Long Island, New York. And that's where I came in contact with some folks because God, God made the ground very fertile. And these folks were talking about this book, Our Fellowship and the Third Legacy Service. And somehow in living in all three sides, I was part of that whole complete for the first time in my life. It was going to take a lot of heavy lifting. Big book talks about patience, willingness, and labor. Labor is work. I'm going to get some calluses on my hand. I'm going to scrape my knees. I'm going to break a sweat. But God's going to give me the, the passion, the, the, the endurance to do it. Am I willing to do it? it has to, I have to be willing to do it because anything's better than what I was doing. And when I saw you guys at a meeting, as Bill talks about Ebby, fresh-skinned and glowing, happy about stuff, it annoyed me a little bit. But I says, how do I get on your team? I'm clueless. I'm dying. Sober. I still feel like I'm imploding. I don't know where to go, what to do, what, how to talk this language. And I got the chatter of a thousand voices screaming at me about everything. I can't shut it off. How do I get on this team? This is the last house on the block. When I would see the steps or the traditions, I didn't know what they meant. In fact, when I was new, I didn't even know who Bill and Bob was after seven treatment centers. I have no clue who these two guys are. I, I'd see a picture of them dressed, you know, the way they would dress, and I thought they were like two feds in AA. I don't know who these guys are. And the steps and traditions, I figured those old timers in the back of the room, you know, they went into the back somewhere, Dead Sea Scrolls, and imparted some new insight upon us. How does this thing work? And I hit the streets on June 23rd, 1988. My dad was in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and... Um, he and I, my, my, my family and I, uh, we, we stopped having contact with each other. I got thrown out finally. And I hadn't seen my dad in quite some time, and he was in Atlantic City, New Jersey, with his wife, spending some time down there. And uh, this particular morning, he woke up, as he tells the stories, around 2 or 2.30 in the morning, and something told him. He never called it God back then. He does now. Uh, something was telling him in his gut, he had to go look for me. And his wife thought a lunacy commission should be appointed for him. She said, where are you going? It's 2.30 in the morning. He said, i got to find my son, Peter. She said, we haven't seen him in, like, forever. He said, I'll find him. i got, I got to go. And so off he went. And he trekked from Atlantic City, New Jersey, to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Now, that's a long drive. Anyone's familiar with that part of town? It's, a, it's a, at least about a three-hour drive, I would say, without traffic. It's a long way. And uh, he's driving through the streets in the worst parts of town, and that afternoon, he finds me standing on a street corner. See, what God did for us was uh, grass, we were able to grasp new soil. He uprooted the two of us and connected a lot of dots because on, either one of us on our best day couldn't make that happen. And uh, my dad found me standing on a street corner in condition I was. And when he got out of the car, he called my name. And the very first thing that comes out of my mouth, because alcoholism dies slowly, was, Dad, I'm okay, I'm fine. You know, I got blood-stained soil pants on, and my construction boots I was wearing, the right boot was missing the front. 
and I'm filthy. I got a little growth on my face. My hair's just, it, I look like a bum. I remember wearing a brown turtleneck and a black jacket in June, and I'm sweating and cold. Yeah. When my dad got to me, I remember, um, uh, I kind of went limp. I collapsed, uh, fell into his arms, literally, and he held me up. Now, as far as uh, closest proximity, physical proximity, physical intimacy like that, we hadn't done that since maybe I was three or four. And it's part of me paying attention to that. As part of me paying very close attention that I felt safe for the first time in years. And what my dad kept repeating over and over while he was holding me up was, I'm not going to lose my son to this, over and over and over again. And um, God was changing both the course of our lives. And in order to do that, as we know, when we go through the steps, everything has to get uprooted. See, I can come in here and look just to trim some of the, the yellow leaves off the tree so it looks good and water it every day. But we're talking about a complete transformation, not just information so I sound good because I can get information and be drunk a day later, but getting information, have a complete transformation from the inside out, completely renewed. How free do I want to be? And for me, that took a tremendous amount of pain where God could do some healing, but before I get to experience healing, I need to know suffering. How would I know healing if I'd never suffered? And enough suffering brings enough pain. And enough pain, I'm looking to change. And enough change, I finally experience some healing and freedom. Many of us die getting there. We don't have to. I almost did. But God surrendered me on that day. And when my dad got me, he sent me, he brought me to my seventh and, uh, treatment center in Amityville, Long Island. People thought I worked there. I was there so many times. And after 10 days of being in this facility, uh, I got thirsty again because alcoholism doesn't care about my desire to stay sober. Our big book tells us a powerful desire to, stay, to, to stop drinking uh, uh, is to no avail. It means nothing. Alcoholism is not impressed. Alcohol is not impressed that I do this a lot. Alcohol is not impressed that I'm going to be sober 34 years. Alcoholism is not impressed that I do service for AA. Alcoholism is not impressed. The only thing that's going to run for cover is when it hears God. And it's going to try to talk me out of God. Because alcoholism wants me drinking, gets stuck in the more again. I need more. It likes me stuck in there. But the only time God's going to run for cover, because my, my alcoholism will override everything except God, is when he hears God. He says, you don't need God. You don't need God. But God is God. And God takes me to God. <clears throat> God brought me here. And in here, he'll take me to him. It's the only thing my mind or my alcoholism can't defeat. Because if it could, none of us would be here. My alcoholism, I heard a lot in AA, wants me dead, will settle for me drunk. My alcoholism gets a life by eating up mine. That's how it exists in me. But what I learned through a lot of mistakes is, you know, I would believe when I say I'm alcoholic that I am alcoholism. So how could I get recovered from alcoholism if I am alcoholism? See, I, I, I've gotten the flu about five months ago. I had a really bad case of bronchitis. But I'm not bronchitis. I got recovered from bronchitis. Will I get it again? Maybe. I might get the flu again. I might get a head cold. I get allergies every year. And I get away from it. 
But how can I get recovered from a seeming hopeless state of mind and body if that's who I am? What I am is spirit. What I am is soul <clears throat> that has alcoholism and I have 12 steps to get me past it. And if I nurture that, enhance it, and have conscious contact with God, I start to see I have alcoholism never cured, but I'm not that. So I get to live the life God gave me rather than being stuck in my story and still operating out of past hurts, still operating out of old woundedness. Because that's what I pass on to other people then. Rather than the good news that the book talks about, I rather live in the spirit, I rather live in the freedom that the book talks about, rather than you did your third column wrong. <clears throat> because it gets ugly when I'm drinking or not drinking, because I could die from alcohols and without ever putting a drink in me, my alcohols will pay any price tomorrow to feel good right now. And I can do that sober. Yeah. So my bottom, I think it's Richard Raw talks about how we fall up. I hit a bottom, which turns out to be a blessing because it brought me to a state of reason, made me teachable. What do I need to do? I can't do this anymore. I wasn't moving in when I hit a bottom. You know, you move, we move into bottoms. It was good. I like this. Homeless is good. It's cool. I'll move in. <clears throat> But in 1980, things started to change. I can't even keep up with some of the changes. And the mind was still screaming at me. And uh, I was brought home after a year and um, brought to my first home group. That's a long way from picking up cold 45 beer on a street corner and having a great time at 14 years old. You're growing up in Brooklyn, and I remember the 60s, uh, early 70s, uh, before MTV and disco ruined everything. It was, uh, we listened to Motown and rock on street corners. That's what you did, or schoolyards. It was great. You know, in the summertime on a Saturday night, there'd be 20, 30, 40 guys and girls hanging out. It was what you did. You got all dressed up to go down to the street corner. <clears throat> There's 10 guys got five bucks amongst all of us, but it was, it was what you did. And they buy Colt 45 B, the older crew would, and uh, drink and get silly and roughhouse and flirt with the girls. The girls would flirt with them. And it looked, it was a scene. And I want to be like that. I want to I have that tough walk. I want to smoke a cigarette and let it hang off my lip. You know, I want to have muscles like that older guy. I want the girls around me. But I'm afraid of my own shadow because I know I'm a walking toxic mistake. You know? About six months prior to my first drunk, my mom, I, who was alcoholic, addicted to every narcotic, uh, had some psych issues after about a half a dozen times, succeeded in taking her life. So I was a kid in the neighborhood who had this thing. So as an alcoholic, my self-centeredness starts to operate. It's about me all the time. My image, my ego, whatever there was, was, was hit. And I felt shame and embarrassment. Ages 8 to 10, I was being molested by someone. So I got this secret going on. So by the time I sh show up to Shriek, when that stuff doesn't make me alcoholic, it's just part of that story. But that kind of dis-ease and discomfort, that uncertainty, that doubt, that second-guessing, that fear-driven life, yeah? Where I'm operating out of fear, I'm seeing out of fear, I'm hearing out of fear, all, all up in the mind, by the way the useless repetitive information before and later on, before and later on, before and later on, all day long. When that gets so loud and so uncomfortable, I need relief. 
Civilians, after a tough week or a tough day, go home and crack open a beer, maybe have a glass of wine, say, oh, my God, what a week. I'm glad it's Friday. Let's have a little barbecue. But they get up Saturday morning and mow the lawn. I steal the lawnmower. <laughs> they can do that. But for an alcoholic like me, when that noise gets so loud and the tension is so tight and I can't get out of it, I can't get out of this cobweb that I'm in, I seek relief. And my default button is, is drink. And then drink some more. Because the craving for me is intensified, never satisfied when I drink. And the mind takes me back there. The bartender doesn't get me drunk. Flacco, the drug dealer, doesn't get me drunk. Nobody gets me drunk. No person, place, or thing gets me drunk. My mind gets me drunk. It convinces me to pick up a drink. That's why the main problem is there. But the solution is not there. It's interesting with this mind, it's a four-letter word. My mind will convince me to do things in sobriety that aren't very spiritual or sober. Because I need to be acutely aware that my thought life can create my current reality. Experientially, I can tell you that. My thought life creates my current reality. If we look at, I don't want to get, start knocking on traditions here, so I want to be real careful. But just to illustrate, if we look at the world right now, every, a lot of thought lives have created our mess. You're on the wrong side of the fence, I'm coming after you. No, you're on the wrong side of the fence, you're a threat, I'm coming after you. And we have what we have in the world. As an alcoholic, I have it right up in here all day long. I got left and right, blue and red, fighting all day, if you will, in here. It doesn't stop. The meeting's doing it wrong, the speaker's missing the topic, they didn't cover it good, they were too much in spiritual, too much God, all day long. My boss is wrong, the coworker's wrong, my girlfriend's wrong, my wife is wrong, my husband's wrong. Like all day long, I need relief from this. What is it? Sober? I go on a sex spree, I go on a food spree, I go on a gambling spree, I go on an anger spree, I go on some spree, something. I gotta blow steam somewhere. And eventually I pick up a drink and I go, oh, I can breathe again. It's unbelievable. I've seen a lot of people come in and out over the years. The longer you're sober, the longer you see that. There were members of AA sitting here in a meeting. And they talk about what happened when they went out, when they picked up the drink. They all say the same thing. I picked up a drink. Oh, because they weren't feeling that in here. Why? Why aren't I getting the aha in here? Why aren't I getting the relief? Why aren't I getting freedom while I'm attending meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous? Is I don't want it? I don't know what the end. There's a lot of things I can point to. What I need to be responsible for is not to tell my group what to do. We have a vote of the group, but I think we, we, I like to see happen, but the group votes. My responsibility is when someone knocks on my door and says, can you sponsor me? Now I can say, this is what I would do. This is how I did it. And that's all I can really be responsible for. And if they're hungry enough and desperate enough, they will take what I have to offer and then pass that on to the next one and on to the next one. And suddenly the group's complexion changes, the climate changes, and the group is talking about a solution and a lot less people are leaving or dying in that group. So what I'm going to do, what we're going to do this weekend, I'm not here to convince anyone. It's not my job. I'm not a power uh, uh, of example. I, I get rid of that. You, some people say that. But that was, that's a heavy cross to carry. 
God's the power of example. Alcoholics Anonymous is the power of example. I'm not opposed to child for any of this stuff. I'm a spoken of every big will. Trust me, you're looking at someone who's broken and flawed and has come to peace with that and therefore given me a ton of freedom in that. That I don't need to be perfect. God wanted perfect, he would have made perfect. When I came home from Minnesota, uh, I thought I knew a lot about step one. I was away for a year, going to this meeting called Three Legacies meeting, this fifth tradition meeting, a lot of old timers there. They were all juiced up about this book, a lot of cats on fire, a lot of ladies just talking about the book. So I come back to Brooklyn, New York, where I'm born and raised, and I'm brought to my first home group, and I meet this man who was speaking, sounding a lot like those people in Minnesota. And I learned a lot from him. But I thought I knew what alcoholism in step one was, but he made me feel even more hopeless how doomed I really was against this step one stuff and that the way out of this insanity, the way out of this life was step two, was the pointer out. And by then I was using a group of junks for good early direction as my higher power, as my God, good early direction. I was given a gift of desperation on June 23rd, 1988. Then it became a group of junks for good early direction. The point is I was willing to look at something other than me for direction. And so the men and women in AA were my higher powers. They were giving me instruction. They were giving me good early direction. It was the willingness that is the key with all of this stuff. Even with step three, some of us do a third step for the first time as I did. I got an idea. I'm praying to the carpenter. But it, it's kind of like it's, it, I'm not locked in yet. So I thought it was not going to work. And my sponsor says, no, I'm just looking at your willingness to try something different. That's it. I never meditated before, but I'll try what you're doing, and I'll learn from you, so I'll try it. Willingness to be changed. I think I can go to God and, go and change God. My prayer is about my positioning to be changed by God. There's a big difference in me working on me to change and God changing me. All this work does is remove, remove, remove the process of recovery. The transformation, not being linear, is about removal, subtraction. The less of me, the more God. So I really learned about alcoholism. And I'll get out of here in just a couple of minutes, but uh, Chris made some really good points with step one. Um, the thing I had to watch because I experienced it. I didn't even see it coming. See, alcoholism never going to announce its arrival. It's interesting how the steps in our big book, you know, page here, 10, uh, like a page and a half, six and seven, a paragraph each. Step one is 43 pages plus doctor's opinion to drive that home. When it talks about how lives had become unmanageable, I would take a look at current unmanageability. And those are the bedevilments on page 52. I haven't had a drink in five years, two years, 20 years, 30 years. Step one doesn't apply anymore. And I go to the bedevilments, and bedevilments talks about having trouble in personal relationships, inwardly or outwardly. Can't control my emotional nature. Pray to misery and depression. You know, full of fear. Can't be a feeling of uselessness. Can't make a living. That kind of stuff. Not the like, hey, I'm in fear today. 
or, you know, me and my boss or the husband and wife had a little spat, a little argument with the kids, and we patch up and move on. We're having trouble in personal relationships. I'm sitting there from the outside, look calm as in, can be, and on the inside, I'm, I, a lot of dialogue going on. I put my head on a pillow and there's dialogue. I'm waking up with dialogue. And it goes on and on and on. I spill the coffee early in the morning. It's going to be one of those days. You know, that kind of stuff. It's raining. My weekend, my life is ruined. I was going to go to the... That's kind of stuff. And so what happened to me is I, I, I missed the whole thing. The essence of unmanageability is not knowing what the day is going to look like when a drink calls and I go. And I have no defense against it. I want to stay sober, but this thing's calling me and I can't. I gotta, I'm going. In fact, it takes me. I heard someone say something I thought was so simple and so just tremendous. That alcoholism can't go to the liquor store and purchase alcohol. It needs me, the vehicle, to convince me I'm going to the liquor store. And on the way there, I'm going, bad idea, shouldn't do this. She's going to throw me out. I'm going to lose my job. I'll take a pint. How's that happen? Then I get sober. What's unmanageability look like? Well, for me, it looked like this. Arranging the external world. So the old timers bless their hearts to say, hey, kid, you look good. You sound good. Keep coming back. You look good. You sound good. Keep coming back. Nice pants. New shoes. Way to go. Keep coming back. Got a little AA car. Keep coming back. Got a job. AA job. Keep coming back. You sound good. You look good. You sound good. You look good. So what do I do? I got to sound good and look good. My life is now manageable. I'm in. I shower, shave, get dressed, go to a meeting, wait for Jody old time or Bill the old time and say, you look good, great share, you sound good, keep coming back. That, sound, that feels good. So now my, my alcoholic mind says, as long as I can keep that looking good, sounding good, I have no more unmanageability. My life, I have managed my life again. It's wonderful. I love this. Failing to realize what the first half of the first step says, that I have no power, choice, control in the mind before I drink, and in the body once I drink, I'm screwed while I'm sober. So while I'm putting on the new sport jacket and shaving and brushing the hair back and making sure I spout some words of wisdom so everyone goes, you sound good, you look good, I'm on my way to the liquor store after the meeting, and I didn't even see it coming. Because the essence of unmanageability underneath that is, I'm going to get drunk. Step one tells a drunk like me, Peter Marinelli, you are going to drink and you can't stop it. It doesn't care how many meetings I make or who my sponsor is. The only remedy, the only remedy to prevent me from doing that, prevent me from even thinking about it, is this power call of God. So what I need to do is be faithful to my practice, and the practice will be faithful to me. If I practice fidelity to God, I will experience God's fidelity to me. And I'm not wrapping myself up in external bandages to prove to myself that I exist and convince you that I exist. The nice, the nice uh, clothes, the nice car, the nice money, the nice haircut, whatever it is. The sound good at a meeting, memorize the book, go there and quote it, make sure everyone hears it. I'm putting these bandages around me and praying you recognize me and say, Pete, you're a good guy because I know I am not. And maybe if I do all this stuff, I'll look in the mirror and say, maybe I am a good guy. And I keep doing that until one day I have the awakening that none of this has worked and I still feel wide, em wide open and empty. I'm still a loser. I have nothing still. After achieving all of this, I am still the hole in the donut. 
Conversely, if my journey, if my journey was whether that stuff happens or not, was to seek this God with the desperation of a drowning man or woman above everything, and I will be mocked at, I will be called a holy roller in AA, I will be called a lot of things even by civilians. That's the cross I joyfully carry. Because at the end of the day, when I put my head on the pillow, I know I'm not better than, I know I'm not less than, I'm a spoke in a big wheel, and I haven't thought about drinking in a long time. I have been set free, and I get to talk about that good news, whether it's behind a podium or a cup of coffee with the new drunk or the old timer who's wavering is not so sure anymore. That's the good news. And it doesn't require credentials to do that. I don't need money to do that. I don't need a college degree to do that. It just requires willingness, which was brought to me out of desperation. On June 23rd, 1988, desperation screamed louder than the ego for a brief moment, and the ego had shut down. Not completely, I don't know if it'll ever go away, but for a moment, the air was taken out of the ego, and then there's a vacuum, and here comes God. And then I get sober a little while, and I start doing some really good things, and I take credit for it. You know, we're nervous to give a talk like we're going to give the talk. I gotta say some profound stuff like, oh, 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 I forgot about God. I forgot. Going on that job interview, God won't be there. I have to sound really good. Make sure I put on the best clothes to convince the boss, forgetting maybe God doesn't want you to have that job. If spirituality doesn't touch every single area of my life, it touches none of my life because my alcohol is permeated every single area of my life. Then you'll look at my actions and know what my beliefs are. I have to convince anyone. So step two tells me I'm going to drink, and step, step one tells me I'm going to drink, and step two is the pointer out. It tells me, chapter two, agnostics, how, where, and why to find God. Simple. Most powerful piece of literature we can read. I can come in an atheist. They say, come on in. I can have preconceptions about God. They don't care. They just say, lay it aside. Lay, just, we're not telling you what you came in is right and wrong. They're just saying, just put it over here for a moment. Lay aside old ideas. And just a willingness to take something new in. That's all. The great reality is deep down within, I don't have to go out there. God never loved me if I change. Has always loved me so I change. We find the great reality deep down within. It's always been here. When I was in an abandoned building and I'm here tonight. Same God. Just I awaken to it. And why, when I see you solving your problem by simple reliance upon this power called God, how could I doubt God? I walk into an AA meeting, I'm rocking and rolling. There's 100 people in there saying, but for the grace of God, how can I deny that? It's the point they're out of this whole mess. Do I want to go back to step one, that kind of pain? And step three would be my decision to get there. And um, it's hot. It's late. And uh, that's all I got. Peace.